0: Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. I am extremely thankful for this group of people, uh, this spiritual family that God has given us, his design for his body, that we can come together and encourage and build up one another. Uh, and I, I'm thankful for the the growth, the, the work that I see God doing among us. W- within the last two years, this congregation has witnessed seven baptisms. We have added 15 new workers to the body. We continue to have many new visitors and evangelistic contacts month after month. And we're at a point where we're having to consider the fact that we might be outgrowing this space. And so God has, has blessed us abundantly. And it's exciting to see the, the growth that he has been working among us. But what I want us to consider today is that unless the Lord builds the house, the people who build it labor in vain. Psalm 127 in verse 1. What what is quickly built can also be quickly torn down. In the parable of the sower, the seed on the stony ground quickly sprouts up. Remember? When the... Sun comes when the, the drought comes. Because it had no root, though, it just as quickly withers away. And so over the past two years, my, my continual prayer, my continual concern is that that could become us. That, that as much as we see God's work among us, as much as we see growth and good things happening, that when the rains come down and the floods came up This house might just go splat. (laughs) But here in Matthew 7, Jesus gives us a solution. He gives us a clear way to guard against that. And it's by building our house on the rock, grounding our growth in Jesus and in obedience to his word. I want to talk about staying grounded as we grow today. You know, most of us are probably pretty familiar with this passage. We, we sing this, the kid's song about the wise man building his house on the rock. Probably most of us even know the, the hand motions that go with it. But one thing that I recognized recently about this passage that I'm not sure I fully appreciated before is that when Jesus says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, primarily he's talking about the words that he's just spoken. He's talking about the the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I think it is legitimate for us to apply that much more broadly to all of Jesus' words, to to the inspired word of God in general. But I think if we want to talk about staying grounded as we grow, perhaps it will be particularly helpful for us to see what kind of foundation Jesus is laying for us here in the Sermon on the Mount what these words of his can give us that will help us stay grounded, that will help us when the winds blow, when the the rain comes down and the floods come up, that we will stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that this house will not go splat. I want to talk about four pillars of the Sermon on the Mount that I think will help us stay grounded as a congregation. First of all, We need to stay grounded in humility. Notice as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew chapter 5, if you'll turn with me here, he starts with what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are basically a description of those who will be blessed and honored in this spiritual economy of his kingdom. But what stands out in this list of blessings is how it turns worldly priorities on its head. These aren't the people that the the Jewish society would normally think of as the blessed, as the honored, as the great. It's not the religious elite that will be blessed. It's the poor in spirit. It's not those who rejoice in their own self-righteousness. It's those who mourn over their sin. It's not the prideful and powerful and assertive. It's the meek and the lowly. It's not the self-sufficient and comfortable and complacent. It's those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so as we think about staying grounded in Jesus's words, the, where, where he starts out in this sermon is helping us recognize ultimately our need for him. That it's not our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power that is going to keep us firmly grounded. We need to have an awareness, a recognition of our spiritual poverty, of our weakness and foolishness, our helplessness and hopelessness without God. A recognition of just how much we need to lean on the Lord and depend on his strength and his wisdom to guide us. And notice as we look at these Beatitudes, the blessings that are given to them, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you, do you recognize in the blessings here, he's not saying these type of people are going to accomplish great things, and they're going to achieve great heights, He says they're going to be given. They're going to be shown God's mercy. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be comforted. And so it's not ultimately about us. It's not about what we achieve, what we accomplish. It's about what God in his grace will grant to us. That he will grant us entrance into his kingdom. He will grant us the blessings of his presence. And so if we begin to think that the blessings we've received and the growth that we have seen is a product of our own wisdom or to our own credit in any way, then we're building our house on the sand. Turn your Bibles for a moment over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul talks to this church in Corinth, they uh, very much were being tempted to glory in people, in flesh. Some were saying there back in um, verse 12 that they were of Paul, they were of Apollos, they were of Cephas. Later on in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here, you know, they were putting much glory in men, in their eloquence, and their ability, uh, in their worldly wisdom. But by the end of this chapter, notice in verse 26, Paul says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." It's not about our wisdom, our strength, our ability, our eloquence. And it's not wrong that we glorify God for what he is doing among us. That that we even talk about how encouraging it is to, to see the growth that is happening in our midst. But brethren, we need to be very careful that we're not boasting about what the Lord is doing among us. We're boasting about what the Lord is doing among us. Do you recognize the difference there? He is the hero of the story. As far as we're concerned, we're foolish and weak and lowly despised. We're the poor in spirit. We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It is his power and his wisdom and his strength that is going to accomplish anything. Among us. Later on in the same book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 5, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. We just plant and water, brethren. But that's the work that any servant can do, right? It's not that, that we, you know, just planted so effectively, so amazingly, you know, that, that our watering was so talented. No, it's that God gives the growth. God gives the increase. Let, let me give a personal example that helps Keep this in perspective for me. When Aaron and I were in St. Louis for five years, we worked with a congregation there that that over the period of five years went from about 170, 175 members down to about 120, 125. We lost more members in five years than this entire congregation. (laughs) Um, and while I, while I hope that Aaron and I have, have grown ourselves in that time, I, I, I can tell you we're doing just about the same work here that we were doing there. Not that much has changed substantially in, in our service. And so when I think about the work that is going on here, there, there is no delusion for me that, that we're the ones who have accomplished any of this. Now, we plant and we water, and wherever we are, God's the one who's going to give the growth. And so if we are seeing growth, we need to recognize that it's God's power. It's God's work. It's his providence. It's his design that is accomplishing that among us. And we can't forget that. We can't stop pointing towards him. We can't stop keeping the focus on him, giving him the glory. Later on in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about shining our lights before men. But you notice what he says there he concludes that picture in Matthew 5 and verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the goal? Yes, people will see it. It's not that, that we're, we're hiding the good that's going on. We are talking about it. We are giving glory to God for it. That people might see the good and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Brethren, if people look at the work that is going on among us and start speaking highly of the East Side Church of Christ, start speaking highly of Grady Huggins, then we have failed in our purpose we need to be pointing people in the way that we talk in the way that we think pointing people towards god and his power and his strength what he is doing among us later on in matthew 6 and verse 1 jesus tells us beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If we want to stay grounded as we grow, we need to keep the focus from beginning to end on God. We need to recognize our utter dependence on his strength, his guidance, his wisdom, and his blessing. And so brethren, if we are going to stay grounded, it can't be about us at all. We need to recognize that we are poor in spirit. That without God, we are nothing. But one of the most important ways that we can make sure that God is at work among us is that we keep the focus upon His Word. Certainly, God works in many ways. Uh, God hears our prayers, God answers our prayers. God, in his providence, opens doors and closes doors. He is very much at work within the world. But I think we need to recognize that one of the greatest ways that he works within our life, that he intends to work within his church, is through his word. And we cannot undermine the importance and the power of his word. Notice here in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Once we get down to verse 21, Jesus starts saying, You have heard that it was said, such and such, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. He goes on to talk about them hearing that it was said you should not commit adultery. Uh, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think it would be interesting to, to think, you know, in the religious world of today, if Jesus was going to preach this same sermon, what, what kind of things might he say? You have heard that it was said, follow your heart and be true to yourself. You have heard that it was said, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. You have heard that it was said, pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. We we could probably put a, a whole host of other things, but the point is that we need to get away from our ideas Uh, In our interpretations, many of this were their interpretations of the old law not going far enough and applying what God had said. Uh, We need to get away from our own thoughts and we need to get back to what God says. We need to get past what we think God wants or approves of and look more seriously and diligently to what he tells us he wants, to the true pattern of his word. Later on in Matthew 7, In verse 15, he talks about there will be many false prophets. Um, He warns us that there will be many who call Jesus Lord and who do many works for his name. And yet, he says there in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How do we guard against that? How do we make sure that that's not us? How do we make sure that we're not being influenced by Those teachings. Well, we need to get back to God's word. Look in verse 24. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What are we building our house on? On Jesus' words. On his revelation to us. And so that means that Every time we come together, God's word needs to be the focus. We don't add to or take away from his word. We don't insert our own ideas of what we think is a good idea, what we think uh, is going to be successful. We let God's word be our pattern. Let God's word be our standard. We speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. That means in our sermons. They need to be scripture-focused. Our classes need to be scripture-focused. Our men's meetings need to be scripture-focused. Our daily lives need to be scripture-focused. And the more that each of us as individuals internalize God's word and start thinking about ourselves, thinking about the church, thinking about his work, thinking about the world around us, the way that God thinks about those things, then we're going to be grounded and rooted in his foundation. We need to allow God's word to mold our thinking in every respect. In Psalm 1, David talks about uh, this picture of a man who is a tree planted by the waters. But notice what he says about this man. He says, starting in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. What gives him this firm root? What gives him the spiritual prosperity? Well, it's certainly not listening to the counsel of the world, listening to the counsel of the wicked, allowing that to inform his thinking. It's rather meditating day and night on the law of the Lord. Brethren, if we want to be firmly planted, as a congregation, we as individuals need to start making sure that our lives are thinking the way that we think about the work that is done among us, the way that we think about our individual lives is formed and molded by God's word. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. What's going to make us into everything that God wants us to be? What's going to help us truly grow and mature? What's going to equip us to weather the storms? Not our business models and marketing strategies. Not our own charismatic personalities. But God's word. Guiding our every step. Molding every facet of our character. But as we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most significant things that we see, one of the most revolutionary teachings of Jesus here, is what true love looks like. If we want to be grounded in the Lord's word, we certainly need to be grounded in the character of Jesus' love. Starting in Matthew 5 and verse 38, Jesus, as he's talking about What they have heard, he talks about they have heard, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They've heard in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what does Jesus say about these things? In verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if he only forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here, Jesus doesn't measure by the world's standard of love, by the world's definition of love. He measures by the Father's standard of love, and we see that as we get into verse 45 and following. That God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God doesn't only do good to those who have first done good to him. If that was the case, we would all be eternally separated from the Lord. Now, God has shown us what true love looks like. A sacrificial and a selfless love. Later on in Matthew 7 and verse 12. We see what is often called the the golden rule. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In one sense, this is kind of the the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is the overarching principle that that he has been stating in one form or another throughout all of the, the book. In fact, if you go back to Matthew 5 and verse 17, Remember, early on, he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, what is fulfilling the law and the prophets? By the time he gets towards the end of this sermon in verse 12, he tells us here that doing unto the others as as we would have them do unto us is the law and the prophets. And everything that he said up until then fits uh, into that framework. As we talk about loving our enemies as ourselves, not uh, retaliating uh, towards them. As we talk about anger and hatred, as we talk about lust and unfaithfulness, hypocrisy and materialism, self-righteousness and judgmental attitudes, all of that is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so as Jesus gets to the end of this sermon and he says that we need to be grounded in these words of his... One of the primary principles that we're to be grounded in is our love for one another. Brethren, why is it that congregations fall apart? I think 90% of the time, it's not simply because of some doctrinal difference. Even when there are doctrinal disagreements, often those things are not handled in such a way to be resolved because of the unloving attitudes that prevent us from working with one another. So often, congregations fall apart because of unloving words, gossiping and backbiting, assuming the worst of others, being quick to judge the motives or intentions of others, grumbling and complaining, failure to put the needs and concerns of others before our own, failure to listen, failure to communicate in consideration and thoughtfulness for others. Churches fall apart when God's love is lacking among us. And so if we want to make sure that as we grow, we are grounded in the Lord, we need to be grounded in his love. Jesus put love at the very forefront of what it means for us to be disciples. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, he tells his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is what identifies us as Jesus' disciples, it's what shows the world that God is at work among us. And, brethren, if we don't have love, we don't have God. And if we don't have God, then we are doomed to crumble. Notice in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, verse 17 and 19, as Paul here prays for the church in Ephesus, he prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. i mean to try to get a mental picture of this passage for a moment. He says that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. So love is, is the soil that we are reaching our roots out into. The love of Christ. And he talks about us reaching the, to the breadth and length and height and depth to know the fullness of the love of Christ. So as we are rooted and grounded in love, our roots are reaching out. They're reach, reaching deeper and wider and longer into the unsearchable love of Christ. than does that describe us? If we don't have those kind of roots in God's love, then make no mistake about it, winds are going to come. Rain is going to come. The floods are going to come up. There are going to be times where we have disagreements, where we have misunderstandings, where somebody said something that hurt my feelings. What are we going to do? We're going to need to be firmly rooted in God's definition of love in all its breadth and all its width and all its depth. Brethren, I, I am extremely excited about the growth that I see among us. I rejoice with the angels in heaven at those who have committed their life to the Lord while we have been here. I rejoice at the many workers that we have joining us and thinking about the prospects ahead of us and doing the Lord's work. For brethren, if we are not grounded in the Lord, and in his love, then all of this growth that we see on the surface is going to come to nothing. The other day, we went over to Ohio Pile, and as we were walking along the path, every so often you could see a large tree, uh, some of them that had been torn out by their roots. Is that going to be us? Are we top-heavy? Or are we making sure First and foremost, that our roots are grounded deep in the character of Jesus Christ, in his love. If we want to stay grounded as we grow, we need to develop the type of love that Jesus has for us. But fourthly, being grounded in God's word, being grounded in his love and and in humility and in faith of his power doesn't happen by accident. It's something that's going to require commitment and diligence and devotion on our parts. You know, the house builder may have all the right materials and he may have the the right blueprint in front of him, but if he doesn't put forth the diligent effort to actually make that blueprint the reality, then it's not going to matter. We can know all the right things, we can say all the right things, but brethren, if we're not willing to put in the commitment and devotion to build our house on the Lord, then it's not going to matter one bit. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, here Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You could fill in the blank with, with any earthly thing there. We can't serve two masters. God alone has to have the throne of our hearts. Later on in verse 31, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Brethren, God has to have first priority in every single one of our hearts. And even the very necessities of life, even my food and clothing and shelter needs to take a back seat to my devotion to the Lord and his purposes and his kingdom. My dreams, my goals, my family all needs to be subservient to God who sits on the throne of my heart. And so, brethren, we can't be like the people in the days of Haggai and Zechariah who were building their own houses and letting the Lord's temple uh, sit deserted. We need to make sure that before we build our own houses, we are first building the Lord's house. That his goals and his purposes for my life are first. And that that trickles down to every other aspect of my life. To my work, to my school, to my job, to my families. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for us. He doesn't try to make it sound as if it's going to be easier or less demanding of us. Later on in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, he tells us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brethren, if you think that the Christian life is easy then you're doing it wrong. Jesus tells us that it is going to be hard. And certainly the Christian life is blessed. We saw that from the very beginning of the sermon. And when we get in the yoke with Jesus, the burden of of sin and of guilt is taken off our shoulders. And we don't have to rely on our own strength and our own power, but we have his strength and His guidance and His wisdom to help us. We can have peace and joy and comfort and hope knowing that He is in control. But the road that we travel with Him is not the easy road. We as Christians are going to have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, thank the Lord we don't go through that valley on our own. We have the shepherd there to protect us, to guide us. But the road that we are going to go down is a very demanding road, a road that will cost us everything. Later on in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 37, Jesus tells us, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brother, if I want to build my life, if we want to build this church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's going to mean that I have to bring everything to the altar of devotion to him. My relationships, my goals, my dreams, my very life itself, all of it is no longer mine, but it's the Lord's. We see the example of Paul the Apostle in Galatians 2 and verse 20. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I I, I think there was a, a time where I looked at that statement by Paul and I thought, you know, that, 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 is, that is an amazing statement of faith. And, and I, I hope that one day I can grow to the point that I'm able to say that. But brethren, I think we need to step back and realize that this is not a statement that just the really strong Christian should be able to make. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means when we were buried with Christ, that we put the old life to death. Each and every one of us is supposed to be nailed to the cross with Christ. Each and every one of us needs to no longer be living for self, but for living for him. In fact, later on in Galatians, if you want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Notice in verse 24, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That needs to describe each and every one of us. If we want to belong to Christ, if we want our life built on his foundation, that means we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the context of Galatians 5 and verse 24, he's been talking about the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And notice how he describes the deeds of the flesh here. Galatians 5 and in verse 19 he begins, and there are some things that might more readily come to our minds. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. But notice there in verse 20, after sorcery, he then says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. You notice something about this list? Out of the 15 things listed here, eight of them, over half, talk about getting along with one another and our failure to get along with one another. We asked the question earlier why is it that churches fall apart? Why is it that Christians divide from one another? Ultimately, it's because we are living in the flesh and not by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And if we are all being governed no longer by self, but we are living for Christ, then we are not going to, as the Galatians were there in verse 15, bite and devour one another. Because this one body is being ruled by one Spirit. Brethren, if if that's not us, if I'm still living for self, then this body is going to have multiple spirits. And that's what we call demon possession. And it usually didn't end very well for the person possessed. If we want this body to be unified, to grow, to be grounded in the Lord, we need to crucify the flesh. We need to crucify our selfishness. And we need to be fully devoted to the Lord, to his purposes, to his goals for us. What's the solution? Each of us needs to be able to say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So brother, make no mistake, The rain is going to come. The the floods are going to rise. There are going to be times where we're going to have to work through some difficult things. Especially as we grow, there are a lot of new decisions that we're going to have to make. Sometimes we may not always see eye to eye on that. It's going to be extremely important that we are founded on the Lord. It's always extremely important that we're founded on the Lord. That means we need to be grounded in His Word. We need to be grounded in humility, recognizing it is not about us. We need to be grounded in His love and grounded in a mutual devotion to His purposes, to His Spirit guiding our lives. What about you today? Is your house built on the rock? Are you grounded in God's Word? Are you grounded in humility? in love, in devotion to the Lord. If not, if I'm not, this house is going to go splat. (laughs) And yet God in his grace offers us an opportunity to change, to start over, to reset our foundation, to begin building our lives on him anew. If you recognize today that in some way your life and your heart is not where it needs to be in your relationship with the Lord, do not leave here today without making that right. If you need to reach out to some fellow brother or sister in Christ to ask for prayers individually, if you need to come before this group and ask for prayers collectively, that's why we're here, is to help one another, to be everything that God wants us to be. And if you've never began building your house on the rock, if you've never committed your life to the Lord, by his grace, you can crucify your old life. You can bury the old man of sin in the waters of baptism. By the power of the resurrection, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If we can in any way help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you will let us know at this time as we stand and sing together.